So I'll start off by saying that a dreamer is a word that I was using long before the term dreamer came about through DACA. I even got it tattooed from a quote by Paulo Coelho that says dreamers cannot be tamed because that's a term that I was given so often since I was a child. So I was very absent because I couldn't really talk to my parents. I couldn't talk English. So I became someone who was just in my own world, in my own head. And people would always like say, siempre soñando, which means always dreaming. And I would, you know, the, the times that I would speak would be like to say, I'm going to travel the world one day. I'm going to do all these things. And of course, people would be like, you're illegal. You can't do that. Like, you know, like stop dreaming. So I was coined a dreamer so long ago. And to me, a dreamer is someone who has the ability to see beyond their circumstances. But for me, it was important to go beyond that and not just be a dreamer, but become a doer. And so to me, a dreamer is offensive. Like, I'd like to think that we should call people who are doers, doers. And we should call people who are dreamers, who are just sitting down waiting for change, dreamers. <laughs> love the reframe. And I got some people who come to mind at the top, but... Instead, I just want you to unpack Fuck Fear for us before we go any further. Yeah, so Fuck Fear, I actually have it tattooed on the side the day that I was just really stressed out. And I'm like, oh my God, my grandkids one day are going to look at me and say, is that Fuck Fear in old English on your ribs? And I'm going to say, hell yeah. <laughs> also, that's a lifelong dedication. But yes, they are. They are going to see that. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all faced help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. You know how we do this time every single week. This is the part where I tell you how excited I am. Again, I feel incredibly grateful for this job and for the space to bring people to you who some of them have had the honor of being friends with for a very long time. And in this case with Samantha Ramirez Herrera for we were just trying to count six or seven years, something like that, right, Sam? Yeah, something like that. We've been all over the planet together, literally. And Sam is what I would define as a radical creator. And a trailblazer in literally every sense of the word. And quote, one of my favorite quotes from her, and this was from the first talk I ever saw her do in the mountains of Montana, she said, I've become my ancestors' wildest dreams. And I just, I loved the power of that and the ownership of that. She's a storyteller who uses her critical skills to help people who seem invisible become visible. An Emmy award-winning filmmaker, self-made entrepreneur. She's a founder and CEO of Off the Record, a creative studio with the mantra, we are creatives who give a damn. And a dreamer who grew up in the United States undocumented. And a quote that I love about that particular experience of yours, and you and I have talked about this a lot, but being an immigrant in this country is difficult because every day you're attacked with words. And if you don't love yourself radically, if you don't love yourself in a revolutionary way, they can break you. But I chose and I choose to be unbreakable. And I choose to love myself. And that's, that's Sam in a nutshell. She has another mantra that's not safe for radio, but you will find in all of her socials and you will hear in the pod later on. And all of those things make up the person that I deeply care about and I'm so proud to bring to you today. Sam, welcome to Better. Thank you, Mark. And I'm like, whoa, like Mark, you know, like you have a way with words. You make, you make me sound a lot cooler than I am. <laughs> that's just simply untrue. What I didn't mention is Sam's radical humility. So let's, let's do that. Like, <laughs> folks, once you dig in, you'll know who's telling the truth here. You'll know exactly who, who's, and I, I was just, I went soft to begin because I also didn't want Sam to feel too uncomfortable, but I plan on 
going through all of the resume. So get ready. I got receipts over here. <laughs> so you are coming to us today from Atlanta, correct? Yep. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Actually, I live in Decatur, but you know, ATL. What do they say? Decatur where it's greater? Decatur where it's greater. Yes. And so I think I want to jump into some simple knowings. Um, you share so much stuff and your origin story. I think what's important for all of us is that we are uh, the culmination of our experience, our lived experience, where we come from, what we become. And a lot of us, because of the societal pressures, turn that off or suppress it because we believe it makes us less cool, less lovable less hireable, all of the things that we have fears of in our world that won't allow us to be the things we think we're supposed to. And what I love so much about you is that you live so boldly owning every part of your story and understanding how it has fueled you. So I'd like to start where we start. And I think, you know, the words that do that for me is we need a more equitable world. We need a more equitable world. And what does that mean to Samantha? So a more equitable world to me means access to opportunity for everybody. It means, you know, like the chance at opportunity. I often speak about the privilege of opportunity when I speak to people. And I like to remind people that, you know, in the place that we live, in the world that we live in, opportunity is a privilege. There's so many people who lose their lives, who risk it all for their chance at opportunity. And so for me, an equitable world means that, you know, there's a balance that everybody has that chance at opportunity and the pursuit of it. And unfortunately, that's what the Constitution says, but in no way actually is, right? It's a nice piece of paper to look at. It kind of feels more like the cat hanging in here poster at this point, right? Yeah. It, it just isn't that thing. And I think you know, I'm going to continue to dig into quotes for you and talking about your trip to America and coming from Mexico City. You know, you moved to the U.S., moved, quotes, air quotes, hard, two months before your seventh birthday. Yep. And, you know, one of the stories that you shared with me was around kissing and hugging your grandparents and saying goodbye and not understanding why you were saying goodbye. And then the next memory being running through the desert with your family. So can you pick us up there at that part of the story? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, like my parents, like I think it's important to note that oftentimes I feel like people glorify the people like myself who, you know, have found like some level of success or achieved something here in this country. And I feel that for me, it's important to always like honor the people who made those sacrifices so, and who continue to be invisible now, which to me are my parents, my grandparents, like my ancestors who sacrificed so much and have not been able to reap the fruits of that labor or those sacrifices. And so, you know, my parents did decide to give us a chance at opportunity. And to them, it was important to do that because they had not had the access to opportunity or to the things that I have access to today. And so, you know, taking that journey was a big sacrifice. A lot of people would call it irresponsible. A lot of people call it illegal. A lot of people call it, you know, so many things. But that journey was actually the catalyst for the ability to pursue bigger dreams to create an impact in our community, in our society, and to, you know, like bloom and grow, which at the end of the day is what we all want to do. And so that journey was tough. You know, I remember like being in this like hotel room, like with my parents, like, you know, after having like said goodbye to my grandparents and family members and being in this dark room, like some hotel or something. And my parents to this day, they still don't go into detail about this journey or, you know, all of these different things. So everything about this journey is based off of my memories. And I remember, you know, like some men coming to knock at the door and telling us that it was time to go. I remember us having to leave our belongings in this room, like noticing that my parents were nervous, that my mother was like, you know, very distraught. And my siblings, my two sisters, um, you know, we having to leave our things behind, like, our, you know, toys we had packed, like our favorite clothes, our favorite shoes, and having to reduce our belongings to like one backpack. And then I remember like just like running through the desert with like my father, my mother. I remember it being like super hot because it was summertime 
you know, and I remember like arriving to Arizona, like I don't remember a lot of this journey, but the next thing that I do remember is like being in Phoenix, Arizona in this completely new place, arriving to a community of other immigrant families and having to share a home with like multiple families in one, you know, one space where you see people creating little paddles to sleep in, in the kitchen, like, you know, multiple families sharing and just like having that complete like shock of like, oh my God, like I'm in a whole new place and I have to figure it out now. Right. Right. I'm just like, fully in the visual with you and in the space with you. And, you know, when we say we can't imagine, and we say that a lot, we throw that term around a lot. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Like, I genuinely can't. And I also want to honor the amount of trauma that is created in those moments. Like, the amount of work that you've done personally and professionally to move through all of those things and to honor them and to just have that so many people compartmentalize or disassociate from these things and they're like, yeah, that's not me. And there's such a beautiful power and they're like, that's me. And I remember these specific moments and how they've impacted me. And you've really been able to harness that power just consistently. But like what, you know, we've got a few minutes left in this segment. And then I want to dig into obviously the transition and you in your younger life, which is such a powerful story too. But What's what are the first couple of days like when you arrive in your new home? The first couple of days were like super hard, right? Because immediately, and I call this the immigrant hustle, the immigrant spirit. My parents had jobs, right? Like they were working as a dishwasher. My mother at a laundromat, and so immediately, like us kids are in this home with other families that we've never met in, you know, with no belongings, just like having to pick a corner to sit in and wait for your parents to come home. So it was like, you know, complete culture shock. Like you're away from everything, you know, you're being told that you have to get ready to go to school. Like, you're just like, where am I? And in so many ways, like, you know, you saying like, you know, having to deal with this trauma, you don't really see that as trauma when you're living it because you're like, this is my normal now. How do I adapt? So it was about adaptation at that moment. Which is a perfect segue into our next place because I really want to unpack the experience of the dreamer and what that even means because the terminology got thrown around so, so, so much, particularly as the DACA marches came to the front. We'll also talk about what that means and what DACA stands for. But I'm going to take us out to break with a quote again, which was, I was part of a community that was invisible. Invisible to so many people except for people who needed to use our labor. You just centered the jobs that your parents took. You also took a job at Pizza at 14. Like with this whole experience, there's an entire industry and industries that run on this invisible labor and the countries would not operate without, but yet dismiss consistently. And the end of that quote is we were not seen as equals. Folks, you're on better with my sister and dear friend, Samantha, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Better. In our first segment with Sam, we heard about the journey. The journey of the dreamer, the dreamers, her family coming from Mexico City, literally running across the border with coyotes, and then the landing in Arizona, the finding jobs immediately, the living many families to a space. And that is the origin story for tens of millions of individuals who have been making that trek to both sides of the border, Canada and America, and have created the depth of culture that we brag about, the roundness of community that we're proud of, the, all of the things that really make up the backbone of these countries, and yet the disrespect is so incredibly large. And so when you talk about feeling invisible, being invisible, I wanna get into the nuts and bolts of like, first of all, what a dreamer means to you, what, what that means to you, what it is by definition, and then how you navigate being undocumented in a country that requires documentation to park your car. So I'll start off by saying that a dreamer is a word that I was using long before the term dreamer came about through DACA. 
I even got it tattooed from a quote by Paulo Coelho that says dreamers cannot be tamed because mm. that's a term that I was given so often since I was a child because my way of expressing myself was through writing or living in my head. So I was very absent because I couldn't really talk to my parents. I couldn't talk English. So I became someone who was just in my own world, in my own head. And people would always like say, siempre soñando, which means always dreaming. And I would you know, the, the times that I would speak would be like to say, I'm going to travel the world one day. I'm going to do all these things. And of course, where I was growing up or even in my home, people would be like, you're illegal. You can't do that. Like, you know, like stop dreaming. So I was coined a dreamer so long ago. And to me, a dreamer is someone who, you know, who has the ability to see beyond their circumstances. But for me, it was important to go beyond that and not just be a dreamer, but become a doer. And so when DACA was implemented and they were calling us streamers, I felt offended by it. And many mm. times when I was advocating with nonprofits and things like that, I was like, I don't want to use dreamer. Like I'm a doer. And they were like, yeah, but you know, like, of course there was like to be politically correct. They would say, you know, we have to use this term. And I was like, it's like disrespectful because we're not dreaming. We are actually, I have not met one DACA recipient that is not someone who is working really, really hard to maximize their opportunities because we know the immense privilege we have on our hands and on our shoulders and the responsibilities of, you know, leading a path for those who still don't even have that piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And so to me, a dreamer is offensive. Like, I'd like to think that we should call people who are doers, doers, and we should call people who are dreamers, who are just sitting down waiting for change, dreamers. Oh, I love the reframe. And I got some people who come to mind at the top, but instead, let's do the, first of all, DACA stands for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And it was uh, an administrative relief bill that protect and protected eligible immigrants who came to the U.S. when they were children from deportation. So by no means their own, you're already on U.S. soil and it gives you protection from deportation and a work permit. So the ability to actually work in the country in a legal capacity and DACA has come under threat and been threatened. And you've been on the front lines of the marches to keep that in place and documented so, so, so much of that. So I think getting into the pragmatism of that, where does DACA stand now? Who implemented it? Why did it come under threat? Because these things are incredibly important. Yeah. So right now, DACA, um, it was just they just had a hearing in the Fifth Circuit um, on July 6th to hear like a final determination of what the future of DACA would be. DACA was implemented by the Obama administration. Um, I can't remember the exact year, but it was implemented by the Obama administration and it became like a Band-Aid solution to a huge problem. So during this time when DACA was put into place, you know, a lot of uh, people who fit in this program, because there was an age group that, you know, was could be in this program, you know, everybody was like nervous about it because you've been in, living like, in quote unquote, I say invisible, like an invisible life for so long. And so all of a sudden you're told to come forward to give your information to the government, um, you know, to give them your address, your parents' names, all of these things. And in exchange, you're getting like this document. It was kind of like, you know, I don't know if we trust this, but many of us did sign up because we wanted to have that opportunity to go to school, to apply for a job, to, you know, do all these things that a lot of people take for granted, like getting a driver's license, right. like being able to go to a club or something or bar with your friends for the first time and not have to pull out a foreign passport, like the little things, right? Like when you're looking for housing, like not have to go to Craigslist and, you know, like have to rent like a home or an apartment or a room through Craigslist because that's unsafe housing, a hurdle that a lot of undocumented immigrants have to deal with. You know, being able to do all of these things and it like immediately opened the door for all of us to be able to just start to do the simple things that made a big difference. They were no small things at all to us. They were big hurdles that we could overcome. So, you know, like DACA really changed the lives of so many people, 800,000 DACA recipients, to be exact. All of a sudden, we were able to go to school, to start building credit, to buy homes, to, you know, like buy cars, 
to literally exist in this society with this document now. So, you know, like DACA came into place and in so many ways transformed like everybody's lives in a positive way. But at the end of the day, we still knew that this was a temporary fix. Every two years, you have to come forward, like get this background check, um, pay the fee, which, you know, at the end of the day, it's about money, pay the fee, which to so many like young people who were now like having to like be the primary breadwinners in their home, like, you know, be that person holding that responsibility now you're having to, um, you know, come up with the money to keep renewing your permit every two years and renew your license and do the whole process over and over. So we always knew that it was not a permanent solution. When the last administration came in and said, you know, we're going to take DACA away. It was like something that in so many ways we were expecting because of the rhetoric and the narrative that was out there about immigrants, the things that they were calling us, you know, like all these offensive words that they were using, this language, which was in a way confusing because they always say do it the right way. And DACA in so many ways was a way for us to show up and get vetted, provide our fingerprints, pay our fee. Like what is the right way when there is no pathway to citizenship for people like us? So in our mind, we were trying to do it the right way. And so when DACA was rescinded by the last administration, it put a lot of lives in limbo and they continue to be in limbo because it has gone back and forth in the courts. Like some people like argue the legality of it being an executive decision that was made. And so we're still in this limbo. We don't know what's next. And for listeners out there, I want you not just to hear this as information, but imagine it. Imagine this is an exercise that tomorrow, after you'd been granted Canadian citizenship or American citizenship or in the Europe or wherever you may be, imagine that that was now decidedly taken away. And they were thinking about it. They were going to reconsider. So everything that you had built, everything that you've done, your family, your future generations, the safety, your job, your businesses, everything that you've done, your health care, all of those things are now in limbo. And that is the reality for millions and millions and millions and millions of people who were given this sort of false half hope and just knowing that in an election it can swing like that. So I just wanted to, to recenter that because what comes next, the power of how you operate in the world and what you've been able to achieve is such an incredible story. And I often say that I don't like sage on the stage stuff. I don't like inspirational stuff. I like action stuff, but this is both. This is definitely both. Folks, you are on Better. My guest, Samantha. Please keep it locked. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. So we have heard the origin story of the superhero that is Sam. And we get to the point right now, I feel like we're in the conversation and I put Pizza Hut in the room. And I put Pizza Hut in the room because you and I both worked at pizza joints when we were 14 and both lied about our age. I had a fake ID uh, and we started our careers flipping pizza. Apparently, I stayed cooking and you're cooking in a whole different way. But not only do you start working at Pizza Hut at 14, you get married at 19 and become a mom pretty soon thereafter. So take us through it. You're at Pizza Hut. What happens next? Yeah. So I'm at Pizza Hut and you know, like at 14, my normal was helping my parents pay bills because you see how hard your parents work. Like it's, it's kind of like, it's a given, right? Like, I mean, growing up in my family and what I saw around me was that you start working when you're young. Um, that's what you do. Like, I remember being in high school and paying bills, like, you know, like my mother saying, oh, the power bill is due or we're short on rent and like having to literally count my tips and say, okay, here's my share. Um, you know, I need to go get school clothes, going to go buy my own school clothes, buying things for my siblings, um, just having that responsibility. At 14, just let them, I'm just going to recenter it. Yeah. I worked a full-time job. Yeah, I was full-time. And even prior to that, you know, we were always working at home, like helping my dad make candy. Like work ethic was ingrained in us that you eat what you work for. And that was something that was always told to us growing up that, you know, like you, you know, you, you work. 
And so, you know, 14 comes around, we're working, me and my older sister, we're working, we're helping out. And that was just our normal. And so like, you know, like high school, like I felt like I was finally like doing good. I had learned English, like I'm getting good grades and the reality of being undocumented hits me. And it's the fact that I won't be able to go to college like all of my friends, that no matter how good my grades are, you know, no matter how American I feel at this point, I can't go to college because I don't have a social security number. And so now we're in this place of like, what do I do now with my life? And so even though my parents' like best intention was that we come and we have these opportunities, to them having, you know, not seen a lot, not had gone to school past the sixth grade because neither of my parents went to school past the sixth grade, to them an opportunity is maybe being a manager at a restaurant. To them, that's a big deal, right? To them, like, and it's not to say that the service industry is a bad job or anything like that, but when you know that you have so much potential and different dreams and passions, it's hard to just like say, okay, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so I took a lot of different jobs, like a lot of different labor work. Like I literally have done every job from working with Vietnamese people doing like nails, making piñatas and selling them at bakeries, um, working at restaurants, working at retail stores, like, you know, like every retail store that you could probably think of. Like I've worked at hanging up clothes, like helping people. Like I've done every job in the service, doing people's laundry, walking people's dogs, cleaning houses, like whatever work was out there, I was doing. And, you know, I saw my friends go off to college. I saw my friends like, you know, leave and I isolated myself because for me, it was easier to just isolate myself than to have to accept and tell people my secret that I was undocumented and that I was different from them. And that, you know, that I was not going to be able to pursue the same dreams that they were pursuing. And so during this time, you know, I did meet somebody and we connected and, you know, it's like that young perspective. You think you fall in love, all this and that, (laughs) only to realize that I still had a lot of growing to do that, you know, like I had a son and that this really wasn't my path that, you know, what my parents, what religion, what society was pushing me to as a woman, you know, in my Mexican immigrant family, as a woman, you get married, you have kids. And you're okay with that. That's your path. And that was not my path. And I had to make very brave decisions with my life. Yeah. So just taking it a step back, because I feel like we have the college conversation, the jobs conversation, you fall in quote unquote love. That first one is so serious. It feels like you could live and die at any moment. Like your heart (laughs) is like, you know, it's, it's in this place of like, I never want to feel anything else but this. I can't sleep. All I want to do is talk to this person. We all know that love. And it's all consuming. And it feels like forever. Of course it does. That's how we're biologically wired. And so you have your son. How old are you when you have your son? I was 20 when I had my son. All right. You're married at 19. You have your baby boy at 20. And then at around, I think from memory, around 25, you just decide that there are bigger things for Sam in the world. Yeah, man. Like, you know, 25 came around. Like, I had been in this relationship and like, I just felt this. I've always felt this voice inside myself. And sometimes I call it a beast. It's the way I've described it in my journals. Like, there's a beast inside of me, like shaking the cage, like so hungry to come out, to devour something bigger than what it's being fed. And it would just be there. And it would be, I would be restless. I could not sleep. I could not, I was depressed. I was anxious because I felt this thing called potential inside of me, just eager to be unleashed. And so it came to a point where I just could not keep it in anymore. I could not keep starving it. And I had to make a really big decision. And You know, like I knew that this path was not for me. I knew that it would go against everything that was ingrained in me to be an obedient woman, to be a religious woman, to be a soft-spoken woman, to be like, you know, like to do all of these things that I was told I was supposed to be a quiet woman because I was an undocumented immigrant. And I was like, I can't be that anymore because it's not who I am. And 
I have to go and find my path. And if that requires me having to leave everything I know behind, I've already done it before. My parents showed me the way, even though they didn't want me to do this. They were the prime example of what it means to rip yourself from a place that you know you don't belong and plant yourself in a place that's fertile. And so for me, that meant leaving everything I knew, leaving this marriage I was not supposed to be in, leaving my family, leaving everything and coming to Atlanta by myself with a one-way ticket and my son. And it's like a lot of people thought it was so stupid. A lot of people thought it was so dangerous. And in retrospect, I'm like, what in the world? Like, <laughs> that does sound very dangerous. But sometimes when you just don't have other options, you have to do, you know, you have to do things that require great courage. And courageous has got to be the number one word that I would use to describe you consistently. But again, I'm just like, I, I know this, folks, I know the story back to front, front to back. And I, so I, I'm sharing with you, but every time I hear it, like I've got chills, I got goosebumps, look at this on my elbows. <laughs> like I get into this place because so many of us, me included, even though I've had struggles, I'm born with this unearned privilege and all of the things that I take for granted in this life, which are Worst case, worst case scenario, there's a job for me tomorrow tending bar at the airport. You know, worst case scenario, there's this thing. And I have all of these privileges, as do most of the people listening to this show. And so what I was really hoping for is coming all the way through, which is you have to take every single one of these days and understand that the privilege of being alive with all of these advantages can be used to make your life better, to make other people's lives better, to truly like dig in versus coasting. Right. And the reason that we feel unmotivated, why our beasts are dormant and Sam's beast is not dormant is because our beast is satisfied. We have all the basic needs. We've never had to struggle for things like other folks have had to struggle. So the beast is like, I come out when my back's against the wall or when I have like unachieved potential. And I just believe that everybody has all of that. So we're at the point in the story. I'm so excited to come back and dig into what happens next because you heard me introduce Sam. Emmy Award winner. Like, it doesn't go from Pizza Hut to a bus to Atlanta to the next part without some incredible things happening and really just holding your power. So, folks, you are on better. You can't tell I'm really excited. Almost, I almost couldn't wait for that last commercial day. I'm like, hurry up with all of that. You're back on better. We are in the last segment on the radio. I'm so excited to share with you. And this, this quote, this one is like, this is it again. I was a misfit all my life, a quiet little brown girl with a loud mind. And when I was growing up, I realized that if I tapped into that power, it was a shield from every negativity that came against me, from every challenge that seemed impossible. And I summed that every single day. We're stuck with ourselves 365 days a year, 24-7. Nobody is stuck with you that long except for you. So you might as well run out and start loving yourself. Yeah, I mean, we could, we got nine minutes left in the site. We could just call it. You know what I mean? That's, that's it. Folks, take that tool and run with it. But you're going to need some context to what actually happens. So I now am on a bus with Sam and your, at the time, five-year-old son, which is an is two full-time jobs. You have a five-year-old. And of course, you want for him everything that you wanted for yourself. And a lot of that is love, 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 love. Of course, the understanding, the acknowledgement, safety. How do you balance that and becoming a media mogul? Like what, what happens? How do you do this? Man, that was the hardest time of my life, but it was the best. And I don't say that lightly when I say the hardest and the best. I think that time of my life, I really had to dig deep and find out who I was. I think a lot of times we go around saying that we know ourselves, but we really don't know ourselves until we are forced to see the ugly side of ourselves, until we are forced to be stripped of everything that we think that we are and everything that we own. And at this point, I really was rock bottom. 
if there's anything below rock bottom, it probably could be that, right? Because I'm undocumented. My family is not speaking to me because they think I'm crazy. I'm in this new state and I have no safety net, like none at all. I don't have parents with money. I don't have, I don't have anything. I'm renting this room that I found on Craigslist and Twitter and, you know, living dangerous. That's the reality. Like, I was living this dangerous life with a five-year-old. And so you, I would look at him and really just like think, I can't afford to fail. I cannot afford to fail. And if I'm going to bet on anything, I'm going to bet it all on me. And so, you know, like this time, but, it, and it's also so weird. I know like Mark, you say that you're not like the sage person and all of that. I am that person at times, right? And for me, it's like oftentimes like my blind optimism, my ignorance was my biggest strength because if I was not thinking about all of the dreams that I had in my mind and not imagining like where I would go, where, you know, the places that I would see, the things that I would be able to achieve, I would not have been able to get past those really hard times being able to have that vision of what was possible and reminding myself every day that I would get there, I had to be laser focused. And so it was hard balancing like being a parent. I remember having to take my son to, to pre-K on the bus, right? Having to figure out how to ride a bus in this new place, having to figure out how to, you know, how to sign him up for school in this new place. Like what documentation do I need to go in? Like, you know, like it was like, the layers and layers and layers of things I had to figure out. But I also think that the more you have to figure things out on your own, the more strong you become and the more self-reliable you become because you just have to figure it out. You don't have an option. And so having to figure out what documentation I need for him to go to school, having to figure out how to ride the bus and take him to school, how to ride back to the restaurant I was working at, how to find a job without a social security number, how to find living without a social security number, how to, you know, how to manage all the shifts that you have to work. Like when one shift, the dinner shift, he would have to come to work with me. He would sit in the utility closet while I was working the dinner shift. Afterward, we would ride the bus home and do it all over again the next day. So it was hard. But at the same time, I felt free. I felt free because I was finally making my own decisions. I was focused. I had no room or time for distractions. And I had a vision. I had a vision. And I had this sense of power inside of me. I felt so powerful and I had nothing. And I felt so powerful and so alive because I knew that I had my chance at opportunity and I was not going to waste it. And you certainly did not. And I just want to take a deep breath to honor that power. And that we say North Star, we say, you know, compass, we say all of those things. You, you said beast. I'm staying with that. I love that one. That one is it. But just, I'm sure people are reacting to this and they're like, what? You had to have your son in a utility closet while you worked? And you're like, yeah, and it was amazing. (laughs) It's like perspective is everything. It's everything. You know, my mom's dragged me along to all sorts of stuff when I was a kid. And I thought my mom was the, and I still think, she's my superhero. You know, she's a legendary. She's tattooed on my neck. My first restaurant was named after her. And she put me in situations where I was like, what am I doing here? But I, I trusted her and I believed in her and her power so deeply because I could see it and I could feel it viscerally. Like I knew that she was doing everything for us and I know that your son feels that way. And I see the two of you together now and it's like that bond is so incredibly strong and it's outside of normative behavior. You know, other people will look at that and be like, you can't, it's like, but don't, don't tell people what they can and cannot do. Don't get involved in people's life because it created that safety for you to just continue to pursue dreams, which leads you to kicking in doors and becoming literally one of the strongest personalities and voices and directors and holders of space in the brown, black, BIPOC, rights, DACA, like put it all together. You are the person that I go to as my North Star and who's holding the narratives for this movement and who is pumping up these movements. So with the couple of minutes that we have left here, how do you get to that space? I got to that space by not not wasting a single opportunity. 
And when my moment came, I, I believe that preparation is everything. So even on the days where I didn't have those opportunities, when nobody was asking me to direct anything, I was learning. I was like taking my shot, emailing people, cold calling, even when my skills were horrible, right? Like I was taking that shot. And when I was given those opportunities, which I did have a moment when someone believed in me and gave me my chance, it was about not wasting it and about preparing for every moment that you envision. Because at the end of the day, you cannot be a walking contradiction and say that you believe in these big dreams and that you will reach you know, certain successes and not act accordingly. So it was preparation showing up every day, even on the days where I didn't feel like showing up. It was exercising, you know, the creative muscle. It was practicing, preparing for those moments and not being afraid to put in the work when they showed up. And now we are here, you know, where I always feel like it's never enough because that's just ingrained in me. Like I always feel like there's more, there's more, there's more that I need to work on. There's more talent that I need to sharpen. There's more skills that I need. But we're here now where we are creative agency that has worked with, you know, some of the nation's like biggest nonprofits told stories of so many people whose stories are often not heard and Mm -hmm. we're in demand and we're growing and our whole team's growing and it's, we're at a place where we could give other people their chance at opportunity. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it really is. And boy, has it been beautiful. And it continues to be beautiful to watch just your, your blossoming, but also the way that you are able to defer power constantly. And so I think that there's this, um, particularly for people who come from the struggle, and we use those words very specifically, there is a fear of loss. And you don't have that fear. Right. So the fear of loss actually manifests in control. It manifests in like, I'm going to be the boss that was, you know, this to me and I can keep everybody safe if I'm rigorous. And the way I experience you and folks for some context, Sam and I work on a bunch of things together and some things that we're very excited about that have a very similar container to this. But I get to watch you work with your team and you just, some people do this because they've been told they have to do this. So let me just use that frame first with their team where they like do this little preamble and you can tell that it's semi-authentic, but it's really they're walking through it. You know what I mean? And when I get to watch you with your team, there's so much deep respect and care and it feels like a family. Uh, and I think that that is what shines through in the end product is that you all share a work ethic. You all share a determination. Many of you share a background. And there's this real centering of like, I can do this and I'm going to. And so in this episode, if you're on the radio with us, I know you took a bunch of tools away. And if you didn't, go back to the beginning and play it again. (laughs) (laughs) It's real simple to see that anything is literally possible with determination and you're not going to get everything that you want immediately. We're in a society that believes that, you know, you apply yourself and the next day you're the superstar and you get 10 million views. It's just not the way things work. And to really see this story through Sam's eyes of the determination, you know, we're talking in five-year blocks here of I did all of these things and then we achieved this and then we're here and just centering your own power and, and knowing that there's something better there for you. Sam, it has been an absolute honor to have you here on the radio with me, finally, Uh, And folks, if you're listening on the podcast, we are about to go into a big segment on mental health stuff. So Sam and I both talk a lot about mental health, but we're going to we're going to kick off the next segment with that. But before we do, radio listeners, please join me in thanking Sam. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you. Love you. It's uh, it's been, as I said, an honor. And um, of course, you're going to be back on the show many, many times. Welcome back. Or if you're on the pod, there has been no fucking break. And I could finally say that word. And I say that word very intentionally. Sam and I both um, cuss like sailors. <laughs> and, you know, I say that because also uh, one of my beliefs is that uh, truth tellers curse a lot. And it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel anything but effortless in conversation. It doesn't trigger you because it's just such a part of our vernacular. And Sam's tagline is fuck fear. <laughs> it is her actual tagline. I have stickers of it. You know, it's it's a real thing for her. I think I have a t-shirt, actually. Um, and you heard in the story leading up to this that, yo, of course that's her mantra. 
you know, I'm chomping at the bit to share it because it's so important to me. And I just want you to unpack fuck fear for us before we go any further. Yeah, so fuck fear. I actually have it tattooed on the side a day that I was just really stressed out. And I'm like, oh, my God, my grandkids one day are going to look at me and say, is that fuck fear in old English on your ribs? And I'm going to say, hell yeah. (laughs) Also, that's a lifelong dedication to working out, which Sam got me doing during the pandemic. I have you to thank for cycling on my Peloton. Literally, I think you bullied me into it. So the 25 pounds that peeled off me during the pandemic also fuck fear. That's on you. Thank you. But yes, they are. They are going to see that. Yeah. And so like, you know, when I think about fuck fear, a lot of people oftentimes that don't really know me on a close, close level, but know my work or have followed me on social media or I've met at some time or another, they they think that I'm just like this fearless person and that I'm brave and that, you know, like I can do anything, which I can't. I'm all of those things. Right. Mm -hmm. But to me, fuck fear was something that I had to call on so many times because those moments that show up in all of our lives where you are full of fear, where you are full of anxiety, where you, you know, you question your moves, you question your dreams, you question your, the things that you know you're supposed to do. It's easy to get back in your comfort zone. It's easy to say, I'm going to go back to what feels good, what's not challenging me to fuck fear. And so fuck fear became a mantra that I had to practice and say, no, like if it, if there's a moment that I know I have to take action on, but fear or anxiety is trying to hold me back, I have to remind myself that on the other side, there's something great. And so I have to use that mantra to push myself. And so that's what fuck fear really means. It's not the absence of fear. It's the presence of it, but the courage to face it. Yeah, that's super beautiful. And, you know, reminding people who are listening, muscle memory is for everything. It's for everything. When we think about great ball players and their repetition and what they do and the repetition of anything or the 10,000 hour trope or any of those things, fear is exactly the same. It's exactly that same thing. And as you push past it and, you know, amongst a million failures, those failures actually aren't debilitating. They're lessons. They're like, wow. And what we would say are failures. I wouldn't even call them that. I think that's free school. Like as you go through these things, you're like, damn, I'm so grateful for that experience to build up my, the calluses of my ability to take negative feedback, to get criticized, to, you know, not get the thing that I thought I was going to achieve and watching that muscle memory improve. It it requires it. And I feel like we've been raised now in the last three generations in particular with this hyper focus on not having any, any nicks, any blemishes, any bruises, like it's not almost allowed. And so the attempts are not happening in the same way because there's so much visibility, right? You and I could fail and nobody would know about it. (laughs) It wasn't on Instagram. It wasn't on Twitter. So I think like the thoughts of really being able to push past and achieve also have a tremendous impact on your mental health. And for the same generations, their mental health and their, how are people viewing me in this spin? So being in the media, it being your dominant field, knowing all of this, and then also saying fuck fear, like how do you think that this is impacting and what do you think your role is in leadership, um, our generations right now? And like how do, how do they get past all of this stuff? Man, like that's like a really good question because like you said, like we had the opportunity and I feel like we're like probably the last generation that had that opportunity to live outside of of our phones a little longer, right? Like, yeah, they came around at some point, but I remember being in high school and being like, you know, a person like I could just be trying all kinds of things out and I didn't have to post about it all the time, you know, like it was a different time. But now like we are living in a society where you know, that's very present. And that's like, that's, that's the normal now. And that's okay. Every generation changes. Right. And I feel like it does have a big impact on mental health because we are oftentimes more concerned about the views about, you know, like presenting ourselves in a way that is quote unquote acceptable or perfect or, you know, creating these illusions. But I think it's so important that 
we remember that all of that is just that an illusion. And it's really all of the things that happen outside of those screens, out of those spaces that really like matter, right? Like it's those moments in between the the posts that matter the most and the work that you put in behind those those posts. And I think it's extremely na like now more important than ever to protect our space, our mental space and our energy and to, you know, and to really like live off outside of those screens sometimes. Yeah, it's like cool to post your work and things like that, but be intentional about it, you know? And I know it's hard because it's addictive, you know, it's addictive. Like I've done it before. Like I've gotten caught up in the whole like social media. I still find myself scrolling oftentimes, but being like aware enough to know when it's time to really like tend to your garden, which I think is your mind to take care of yourself. You know, that's important. And sometimes we don't even realize that we need to protect our mental health because we've normalized so much like trauma. We've normalized hardship, especially when you come from certain backgrounds and circumstances that becomes your normal. And you see so many people around you experiencing similar trauma and similar hardships that you're like, Hey, they're going through it too. Like this shit's normal. So you normalize all of that. Yeah. And it's just not right. It's just, 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 just not. <laughs> And I think, you know, your lens on this in particular from where you come from is worth us taking like a little step back to continue to walk forward. And you and I have talked about it and I'm really glad that it's a safe space for us to continue to talk about this stuff because we need to normalize not the way that we feel about it as being a casual thing. You know, the U.S. in particular at this point, there's not a day that goes by where there isn't a massive traumatic event. And I say that with all of the weight that is intended, a massive traumatic event. And there's no time to recover. There's no time to mourn. There's no time to grieve. There's no time to look through that when you're like, well, I didn't know anybody at Parkland. I didn't know anybody at this mall. That, that is the way that we're being made to think is like, you don't need to. You're, you're part of humanity. You're part of this experience together. And you can also empathize that if you lost your four-year-old or you lost your mother or something happened for a random act of violence where nobody feels like they're protected anymore in any way, like all bets feel like they're off, that can't be normal. It can't be normal. And unfortunately, it is very much the analogy of the pot and the boiling, the, the frog in the boiling pot. And it's like it's just been being turned up so consistently that we're in this space. And I think you saying, tend to your garden. You have to take breaks from socials. You have to take breaks from this discussion and really be like, how do I want to live my life and where do I want to be in safety for myself and my family, my profession? What, what do I want to do? And you and I travel all over the world. Pretty much we lived out of suitcases for the last six, seven years and would see each other all over the world. You were in Harlem with me three, four months ago. And to have these consistent re-traumatizing events of like, am I safe? I never had to think about if I, I was safe. Like I had to think about safety from other ways, but I didn't have to think about if I'm going to Walmart you know, or if I'm going to these places, am I going to be okay? So I just wanted to bring that lens in as we did dig deeper into your personal one. And I'll use a quote, which was, life was so harsh for me and all my siblings that at some point, both of my sisters attempted suicide. When doctors told my mother that my sisters may have bipolar, the sister, sorry, she ran to church. She tried to pray it off. She tried to make us pray and burn our Disney movies because who knows? And that's when I knew our communities needed help. My mom would be like, that's for white people. I was like, no, everybody can have mental health issues. That's a reality for our communities. The stigma is so strong. I've had so many guests, black, brown, Asian on the, on the show who are like, we're, we're just genuinely in our upbringing. We're not allowed to have this form of weakness. We weren't allowed to discuss it. And it was very much that's for white folks. And so I'd love you to unpack that a little bit for me and like how you found your own mental health journey above and through all of what was normative for you. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate that that's, that's the case. But growing up, that was what, we, what was ingrained in us, that you show no weakness. And for me, it was particularly hard because I've, I was always the, the soft-spoken one. 
I was always the the quiet one. I was the nerdy one with the big glasses taped up. You know, I was the one that was easy to bully. And I was the kind one that had this big heart. So everybody took advantage of it. So growing up, like, I was the one that would get the extra scolding. And I would get, you know, the extra beatings at times because I was being made tough. And like, don't cry. Don't show weakness don't, you know, like chest out, chin up all the time. Like nobody wants to hear your sad story. We all have a sad story. Um, you know, like nobody cares, like emotions, like who, who wants to hear about your emotions? Like nobody fucking cares. That's like the mentality that's ingrained in you like all the time in my family. It was my father, like he never hugged us. Like we are just now at this age getting hugs from our dad. And now it's like awkward because now it's like, do I pat you? Do I high five you? <laughs> and so like we're now like at this point to where like if I see him, I'm just like kind of like a head nod. Like, you know, it, 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 it's something that's ingrained in you. Mm. And so for someone to come in and say something like it's bipolar, depression, anxiety, that's like a big like thing, right? Like, no, how dare they? It's almost insulting. How dare they say that, you know? a mental health issue has popped up. And so it was, I I think it was difficult because in so many ways, like I myself adopted that mentality and it's still something that I am consistently working on healing, right? And undoing because sometimes I have, I find myself having, finding those same thoughts when I meet somebody and they're not, you know, like they don't have the resilience or the toughness or the grit that I that I have or that, you know, I would want them to have, I have Mm. to take a step back and say, hey, like you are projecting onto someone else and you have to take a step back, (laughs) you know? Very much so. And so it's like a journey. It's a journey of like undoing, of healing. I didn't start like that journey until DACA was rescinded and I was full of repressed emotions and anger and I had not allowed myself to cry for years and years and years. And when DACA was rescinded and I was just in this space fighting for my business, fighting for my, you know, my opportunity to stay in this country um, with all the responsibility that I had on me, trying to figure it all out. Like I just, it was like I exploded like... I just didn't know how to process all of these things. And that's when I started going to therapy. Mm. And that was a journey. That's been a journey of tending to my garden. And it's an ongoing journey forever. Like, I don't think we ever get to that perfect stage of like, you are fully healed. I, I know we like to think of the idea of that, but it's, it's never going to be perfect. We could just get better. Yeah. And sometimes I can only do 11 push-ups instead of 15. <laughs> yeah. It's the exact same thing. You know, our mind and our spirit and our body need to be cared for. And I think we have this differentiation consistently. I started speaking about addiction in like, I don't know, 2013. And people are like, oh shit. And I started speaking about mental health right then. Like visibly out loud, interviews, TV. I got literally TV segments wouldn't run because of the things that I was saying about mental health and like how, how badly we needed to tend to it because I'd lost, I think in the prior year, three people, the suicide that were really close to me. I was like, this is like, there, there needs to be better tools. There needs to be like, there's gotta be stuff for us to look at. And I feel like now we can very much normalize this conversation nine years later because people like Sam go to therapy and talk about it. Right. And so you have to see it in people that look like you, that sound like you, that are like you. That's how we learn. That's why storytelling is so critical as well. And also putting yourself out there. I know that people say that a lot, but I don't think anybody is listening to this show now feeling uncomfortable about this. If anything, it's an affirmation. If anything else, hopefully it's a push, right? Because therapy is not for people who are just broken, right? It really is. It's preventative medicine. I don't know for me, if you feel the same, Sam, like even when I feel like I'm doing great, I go in and start to unpack things. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even realize that that was bothering me so badly before we get to the point of eruption. Is that your experience as well? Like, do you, do you feel like it's preventative maintenance, like a service? It it is. And I, I've had my own journey with therapy, right? Like I've had my own journey and 
I haven't been going to therapy lately. Like I work out now and I spend time in nature because I'm still in my path, right? Where I'm like, I don't know if this is working for me. We'll have those moments. We will have those moments where you you may feel that it may not be working, but it is important to be aware. It's important to have that awareness of like, hey, like I feel myself getting a little out of control. I feel myself getting a little, you know, deep in the ocean. Let me do a gut check. And, you know, let me get myself to a new place because I need to, in so many ways, like save ourselves. I feel like sometimes we think of the idea that somebody else will do it for us. But the reality is that we have the power to save ourselves, but self-awareness and intention is the first step. And so finding what works for you, there's nothing wrong in, you know, finding what works for you and in talking to other people that you trust about it because it's hard making yourself vulnerable. It's really, really hard. That requires a level of trust. I think there's yes and. That's a beautiful frame. Therapy and really good books will often crack something open in us that requires a lot of reflection and a lot of work and time. So it might be, my first thing that I jumped into was anger. I was like, why do I react so heavily? And then you like the tip of the iceberg and the drawing that everybody shows, right? Is like, here's the anger. This is what's below it. And so unpacking what's below it. So you might have a session and somebody's like, okay, yeah, have a look at these things. You have to go and figure that stuff out. And you kind of have to have to do a hard stop there too. It's like, cool, I can't take on any more tools until I figure out what this particular thing is. And that requires doing the work. So I think that people think of talk therapy as like, oh yeah, you're just going to tell me what happened to me. No, you're going to tell you what happened to you. That's, That's it. Somebody's just holding the container for it. And I think you're also incredibly correct in the like, sometimes you need to take space. I have a really dear friend and teacher who's a Buddhist meditation like guru, right? And he's also a white dude who worked with Whole Foods for a long time and helping their direction. And a really special guy who listens to thug rap music and, you know, is a, a multi-layered and complex dude. And when I first started to meditate, and by no means, don't let me sell myself as a big meditator. I'm not. I'm terrible at it. My attention deficit is just not there. But when he was like, hey, I know you got stuff. Be careful with meditation. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, when you deepen and you crack a seal, it's really important to know that you're going to need time because you've compartmentalized things. Some of them you blacked out and all of us have that. And therapy is the same thing. Something's going to come out and you're like, okay, I need a second because that feels like a fire hose right now. Um, And just to be gentle with yourself. And, you know, dig into the other modalities, as you said, and nature and family and work if it's purposeful uh, yeah. and, and really gives you that. And so let's talk about work as we come into the last few moments of the show. What are you most excited to be working on right now? What do people need to watch that you've already made or are going to make? What can we dig into? And of course, folks, as always, this will all be linked out in the show notes. And I am excited about everything. Um in life right now, I feel like I found a notebook of something I wrote 18 years ago. And I was like, I'm going to spread my wings and fly. And I have these big visions. And I was like, whew, it only took 18 years to feel like I'm in that space of takeoff, right? And a lot of times I have like, you know, I have accomplished some things, but I, I just never felt like I was at that point yet. And I'm, I feel like I'm in this place now that maybe I put my 10,000 hours in, maybe like, you know, like, I, I don't know, but it feels like a different era. Even though times are very heavy and there's a lot going on, I feel like I have arrived at this time for a purpose and for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time ever, I feel whole in so many ways. And I feel that that is reflective in the work that we're doing. And that is reflective in the opportunities that are showing up now, because I feel like there has been a level of preparation and a level of execution and a level of just belief that has brought me here. 
And so the team that we have built, I feel extremely grateful for because they complement and they complete me in so many ways. And some of the work that we are excited to be working on is definitely, you know, like a lot of the immigration work that we've done that I would love people to watch is the Home is Here March. I think that those 18 one-minute films will give people a lot of context into what the immigration experience is and what people have been fighting for. Mm. That's like definitely something that I would encourage people to watch. We are working on a show called Civics for the Culture um, with Fair Fight Action, which is Stacey Abrams' nonprofit, which um, focuses on educating you know, young folks from 18 to 35 about how to be civically engaged, if that's like, you know, your jam. Um, you know, the potential of working on something with you that I don't know if we could share about yet, but that that's exciting working on that. And mm-hmm. there's some things that I'm working on that I can't share yet, but that are definitely taking me to a new level that I have been preparing for for those 18 years since I wrote that in my journal. And so everything feels fresh and new and exciting right now. And I feel like I'm entering the era of my life that I have dreamed of for so long. Mm. And I feel like I'm getting there and it feels good and I'm ready for it to also pour over and be something that uplifts like others around me and provides opportunities for other creatives and other folks And that even though we are living in times that are confusing and scary, it's also a time of opportunity because where there's a lot of problems, there's a lot of solutions to be found. And I think that we have the power to be the creators of those solutions. Destruction is the first step to creation. And I feel that what we're seeing right now is the tumbling of a lot of old establishments and mm. old systems. But we have the opportunity to be the pioneers of something new. And I'm excited about that. I'd vote for you. I mean, when, <laughs> when, when do you run? You know what I mean? Do I, do I get to be your campaign manager, I guess, is the next question, and your security. Uh, not that you need it. But thank you for sharing all of that. And in every conversation that you and I have ever had for the whatever amount of time, which feels like forever and then also yesterday, uh, I always leave um, with a gigantic smile on my face because you instill so much hope in me. And uh, I, I know that you've done the same for the audience today. And thank you for, as always, bringing your entire self. Uh, it's, it's just so critically important, um, particularly in this time. And also your acknowledgement of the responsibility. I think we, we live in, in a world that throws its hands up a lot and points fingers about who's responsible. And when you take responsibility for creating narratives and changing the story, which then changes the actual world we live in, like the Samantha that wrote in that book 18 years ago, manifested and changed the way that she was going to be in the world. You are definitely not managing a pizza hut. And I'm, you know, I know how proud your parents are. And I've gotten to eat your dad's candy and damn, is it delicious. Um, And, you know, let's finish with, again, your quote, we need a more equitable world, but it's not going to come passively. And so it's it's an honor to walk in step with you. I love you very much. And thanks for being a guest with us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I'm a fan. So thank you for always being there when I have a question or, you know, for anything. I appreciate you. Yeah, family for life. I got you. Folks, in the bio, you are going to see all of the links. If you're on my socials, you are. You're on my socials. You see Sam come up quite often. Sometimes we're with Tracy Morgan in Harlem giving out food. You know, Sometimes we're in the mountains of Montana. Sometimes we're kicking in white business conferences in Rhode Island together. Could be anywhere. Um, but you know, look for us because we're definitely out here again. Love you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Take care, folks. Bye.